Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Who wrote these words in 1522? Here are the words. When I was younger, I gave myself overmuch to human teaching like others of my day, and when about seven or eight years ago, so that's around 1514, I undertook to devote myself entirely to the scriptures, I was always prevented by philosophy and theology. But eventually I came to the point where led by scripture and the word of God, I saw the need to set aside all these things and to learn the doctrine of God direct from his own word. Then I began to ask God for light, and the scriptures became far clearer to me, even though I read nothing else than if I had studied many commentators and expositors. I'll give you a hint. The man who penned these words was born in the 1480s to a peasant family who spoke German. He went off to university, studied the medieval theologians, eventually realized they obscured the scriptures. 1516, when Erasmus published the New Testament in Greek, he got a copy, read it for the first time, and was completely transformed by what he found written in the scriptures. He broke his religious vow and married. He left the Roman Catholic Church, and he led a reformation in his city in the 1520s that would change the course of European history. Who do you think this is? We want to say Martin Luther. This was Holdrick or Ulrich Zwingli. And I say it's a surprising thing because everything I just said is also true of Martin Luther. It sounds like Martin Luther, but while God was working in Germany in the Reformation we're more familiar with, at the exact same time, a parallel Reformation was taking place in another part of Europe, in Switzerland. The reason for this, parallel events, there was some cross-influence. Zwingli read and heard about Martin Luther, but Luther only confirmed what was already happening independently in Zwingli in Switzerland. As we see in this quote, he went directly to the word of God. So when we find similarities, as we will find many, between these two reformations, The largest reason for that is because the Word of God was really leading both of these reformations. It just so happened that both of these men in different places, in the same context of the Roman Catholic Church, were reading the Word of God and realizing this is what God's Word actually teaches. And so there were two reformations. When the Reformation, the Word of God in the Reformation, burst upon Germany in the 1520s, and upon Martin Luther, even before that. It showed itself in many different ways. When it burst upon Switzerland at the same time, and upon Ulrich Zwingli, it showed itself in some other ways, in ways that were specific to his Swiss context. So many similarities, but also some marked differences, because these are two different men, and they live in two different places. Uh, Yes, as we'll see, they do meet later on, and, well, I won't get ahead of myself. She asked if Luther knew Zwingli. Yes. The only question we want to answer this morning is what happened specifically when the Word of God burst upon Zwingli? That's the one question we're asking. And we will begin to answer that in the same way we begin all of our lessons, which is with our Reformer's birth. Ulrich or Holdrich Zwingli was born in Wildhaus. Let me spell Zwingli for you in case you don't have that. Z-W-I-N-G-L-I. Ulrich is U-L-R-I-C-H. These are German because what was spoken in Switzerland was a dialect of German. He's born in Wildhaus, W-I-L-D. H-A-U-S, in Switzerland. 
This is a beautiful village in the Alps. And he's born on the very first day of the year 1484. Luther was born two months earlier in Germany. Zwingli was one of at least ten children. And his father was a peasant, but probably a bit more of a well-to-do peasant. He was involved in government in Wildhaus, and this will prove very important later in Zwingli's life. Zwingli will have a unique view of the government's role in the Reformation. We don't know if it begins here with his father's involvement, but it well may have. Either way, he's only at home until he's five years old, because at the age of five, he goes on the other side of the mountain to begin what we would consider elementary school. Then for high school after that, he goes to Basel and then to Bern. These are two important Swiss cities. He will spend 17 years of his life in the education system, learning. So he does elementary school near home, goes to Basel, then Bern for high school, basically. Then when it comes to university, he actually leaves his beloved Switzerland and he goes to the University of Vienna. But then he comes back. Leaves Vienna and he finishes his degree, becomes a Master of Arts in Basel, back in Switzerland. And I think one important takeaway from this is you see already in the course of his education how important Switzerland was to Ulrich Zwingli. He was not an Erasmus, a man of the world, the European world. He was a Swiss and he was a Swiss of the Swiss. Almost in the way that you can't understand Martin Luther, unless you realize he was a German of Germans. And you can't understand the Apostle Paul unless you understand he was a Jew of Jews. And with Ulrich Zwingli, he was Swiss. And he was proud of it. And he was very much shaped by his heritage. So most of his studies take place in his fatherland. Now, what can we say of these 17 years of study preparing him for what God has for him Well, we don't have time to say very much, but I want to point out the one most important feature of his education, and that is humanism. We've encountered humanism before, but just as a reminder, humanism began in Europe in the 1300s, so 200 years before this, and it was in what we call now the Renaissance, which is a French word that means rebirth. What was reborn in the 1300s in Europe? Greece and Rome. These two ancient civilizations. They were reborn. People began to study Greek and they knew Latin as well to read the Greek and Roman classics going back over a thousand years before when Greece and Rome were great empires. They would go and study the classic works of these civilizations because beginning in the 1300s, they believed, the humanists believed that these held the secrets for how we can advance as a society. So the humanists were studying Greek and Roman classics. Almost accidentally, the Greek New Testament was written in a very Greek society, in the Greek language, in ancient Rome. So if you're going to study the Greek and Roman classics, you're going to encounter the New Testament. That's what the humanists did. Now, The humanists were a popular intellectual movement by the 1500s. They were very critical of the church because studying and thinking and looking back in history tends to lead you to realize, wow, there's some problems in the church right now. They're critical of the Roman Catholic Church, though they were not usually willing to leave it. But they had a very positive view of mankind, human nature, that we could serve and please God if we try hard enough. Now, their critical view of the church made the humanists almost allies of the Reformation early on. Said, you don't like the church? We don't like the church. But their high view of human nature killed the alliance. And eventually, those humanists who would become reformers, which were most of them, Most of the reformers had humanist training. It was because they realized human nature is not what the humanists think it is. So Zwingli's education is filled with ancient philosophies of Greece and Rome, with the humanism of his day. Even his theological learning, which he has at this point, is filtered through 
Greek-Roman philosophy. And the main reason that happened was Thomas Aquinas. You don't have to remember him. He was around 1,000, 1,100 AD, I believe. Thomas Aquinas was the great theologian that was studied at this time. And Aquinas took many of his ideas or the framework of his theology from Aristotle, who was an ancient Greek philosopher. So even his theology is shaped by ancient non-Christian philosophies. This is the education of Zwingli. Now, all this time, Zwingli develops a passion for learning, really a hunger for the truth. He would later write in his most important work that every person in the world, because we are made in the image of God, have, whether we are aware of it or not, a secret, sometimes secret, inner longing for the truth that is found only in God's word. And everything we do is coming out of that impulse, whether we're aware of it or not. That could very well be said to be true of Zwingli right now. He's finishing up 17 years of education in all these ancient philosophies. He comes out a very confused young man, but he has this thirst for truth. And you see this when he finishes school in 1506, graduates the University of Basel in 1506, and he moves to the next season of his life. Now he becomes a priest, or we might consider a pastor. In Switzerland, so first he's a pastor at a place called Glarus, G-L-A-R-U-S. Ten years later, becomes a pastor in Einsiedeln, E-I-N-S-I-E. D-E-L-N. This is all preparatory for what God's going to do, but these are two early pastorates that he held. And you see his love of learning at this point because he's now graduated 17 years of school and he's welcome to do what many of us tend to do, forget everything that you learned, now get into the real world. But unlike many other priests who did that, Zwingli was unwilling. He wanted to to know. He didn't know which direction to go, but he was hungry after truth. So he continued systematically his own education. He was a self-learner. And while he's at Glarus and Einsiedeln for these over a decade, he's studying and studying and studying, along with being certainly a very busy pastor. But he wants to know what's true. He's longing. He has an inner thirst for it. Now this period of his life, before we get to the main period of his life, it's characterized by this longing for truth and confusion. See, on the one hand, he was very faithful to the Roman Catholic Church. Something interesting in Switzerland at this time is that Switzerland was the sort of mercenary country of Europe. When anyone in Europe wanted to fight a battle and didn't want to lose their own people, they would just pay money to the Swiss, and the Swiss would go, because there weren't enough jobs in Switzerland for them, they would go and be mercenaries. They'd be hired soldiers to fight Europe's battles. Well, Zwingli, during this time as a pastor and study, he's realizing, well, that's dumb. Like, this is a terrible idea. We're dying for other people for the sake of money. So he argues that the Swiss people should not be the mercenaries of the world. But there's one exception, the Pope. If the Pope wants Swiss fighters, then the Swiss should fight for the Pope and for Holy Mother Church. Well, that made him popular in Rome, as you can imagine. And in fact, the Pope actually gave him a pension. He was paid by the Pope every year a fairly large amount of money because of the stance he took on letting the Pope have Swiss soldiers. And that would continue until he gets partway into the Reformation. So on the one hand, he's committed to the church. Even at Einsiedeln, he's pastoring the locals, but he's also pastoring pilgrims because Einsiedeln had a famous shrine of Mary. And he was sort of in charge of that. He was involved in that shrine and had no problem at the time. So on the one hand, Roman Catholic Church, but on the other hand, he's beginning to realize that thirst he has for truth goes beyond what the church can offer him. He's not finding it satisfied in the church. So he's actually taking the yearly pension that the Pope is paying him and spending it on books, 
lots and lots and lots of books. He's still studying and reading. In fact, once the Reformation begins to draw nearer, he's actually taking the Pope's money and buying Reformation books. He's buying books written against the Pope with the Pope's money, and I think he saw the humor in that. Now, in 1516, this is in the middle of these early pastorates, right the year that he's transitioning from Glarus to Einsiedeln. Later in life, Zwingli would look back and say, that, that was the pivotal year. That's when things began to change. There's no dramatic conversion with Zwingli like there was with Luther. Instead, there's this process of realizing, moving from error into truth. But 1516 is the year. And the reason, it seems, is because when he came to that year, he had been studying and studying rather sincerely, but he'd been studying lots of books about the Bible. And he realized, I haven't actually studied the Bible, which was very common in his day for even well-educated priests. In 1516, his hero, Erasmus, the greatest humanist in Europe, published an edition of the Greek New Testament. He immediately gets a hold of the Greek New Testament and begins to read the Bible itself. And just like Luther, it takes him over. It takes Zwingli over. This is what he'd been longing, in an ill-defined way, he'd been longing for truth. And he realizes, however clearly now, he's realizing this is where it's found. He's so impressed by what he finds in the New Testament that he goes on very shortly thereafter, to memorize almost the entire New Testament in the Greek language. Then he begins to study Hebrew because he wants to access the Old Testament that's written in Hebrew as well. The sparks are now there in the brush, and it just takes time for them to grow and catch fire. Now Zwingli's love for the truth must have come through in his preaching, studying, he's wrestling, he's in the New Testament. It comes through in his preaching because his reputation as a preacher begins to spread. So much so that it brings us now to the next and most important season of his life. He receives a call to become the people's priest in one of the more important cities in all of Switzerland, the city of Zurich. And he's called to the great minster, the great church in Zurich, a very important church. And he accepts the call. Now this is taking place 1519. Zurich is the city that Zwingli will live in until the day that he dies. And it is from this base that the great Swiss Reformation will occur, or begin to occur. But when Zwingli steps into the pulpit at the great minster of Zurich on his 35th birthday to preach for the very first time, he doesn't know any of that. He doesn't know what we know today looking back. He doesn't know what God's purposes are. A great reformation was certainly far from his mind, and in fact, probably even further, when later that year, 1519, a plague swept into Zurich, which is not uncommon, and killed one in every four people in the city, including Zwingli's own brother, who had died, I don't know if he was in the city or not, but he had died from this plague. Many pastors and doctors leave when the plague comes, unfortunately, Zwingli stayed, and contracted the disease. Zwingli had been, by God's grace, through his studies, moving from error toward truth. He was feeling this inner satisfaction. This is the truth. But he was cautious by temperament. All of his life he was that way. And so it prolonged the process. And now it looked like right in the middle of that process, it was all going to be for naught. He was sure he was going to die. But God had other purposes. Zwingli survived the plague. And now, the end of this plague, 1519, you had everything ready for a fire. Because here was a man 
who knew the scriptures, long parts of it by memory, who was immersed in the New Testament and the Old as well, who loved the truth. Here is a man of great intellectual ability and a great preacher who could communicate that. And after he survived the plague, here was a man who said, God, I'm willing to do anything. He's cautious by temperament, but he says, whatever you want, God. He was certain God had spared him for a purpose. And whether he knew it yet or not, that purpose was that Switzerland needed a reformation. And Zwingli was the man to bring it. So three years later, 1522, Zwingli was ready to be used by God to bring about the Swiss Reformation. The word had been drawing him, and it was in around 1522 he's realizing he will no longer be a slave to the Roman Catholic Church and its false interpretations of the Bible. He's been reading the Bible for himself, and it has set him free. And now he intends to set it free on this city. Now, what's really interesting is we would imagine at this point, if this were a movie, the music is picking up, okay, and things are about to get serious. Now, if you're watching a movie of Martin Luther, what happens at this point? He goes and he nails the 95 theses on the church door wall, symbolic as he's pounding against the church doors of what's about to happen. Now, there wouldn't be really a movie of Zwingli because the pivotal moment that launches the Swiss Reformation is much less dramatic. In Luther, in Germany, it's pounding against the doors in, with Zwingli, in Switzerland, in Zurich, it's the eating of two sausages. Really, March the 9th, 1522, Zwingli was present with about a dozen other men in a, the house of a local printer in Zurich. And they had two sausages, good, fine Swiss sausages to be sure. They cut them up in little pieces, distributed the pieces among the dozen men, and ate. Zwingli was the only one who he was present, but he didn't actually eat. The reason this mattered was that March the 9th fell within the season of Lent. And the church required that during the season of Lent, no one was to eat sausages, couldn't eat meat. So these men had gathered together, not secretly, but to publicly display that they believed that this tradition of the church, which bound the consciences of the people and put upon them a commandment about food that was not in the Bible, they believed that to be unscriptural and in fact contrary to the scriptures. So even if the Roman Catholic Church required it, they would refuse. They were thrown in prison. But Zwingli did not eat, so he was not thrown in prison. Very important because a few weeks later, he got into his pulpit and preached an important message about the freedom Christians have in eating. This was a stand, 1522, against the Roman Catholic Church. This is the breaking point. Now he's willing to openly oppose what the church teaches. Now we say, who is this Ulrich Zwingli, to oppose so large and great an entity that spans across Europe and across more than a millennium, the church. He answered in that same year, 1522, who is he to to oppose the church? He answers with the most important piece of writing he ever pens, called On the Clarity and Certainty of the Word of God. The church was arguing that it alone could interpret the Bible for the people. If the people themselves read the scriptures, they'd get confused and come out with all kinds of crazy teaching, which in fact was true, that did happen. So they said, leave it to us, we'll interpret the Bible for you. Of course, over time that led to a building up of traditions that were contrary to the Bible, but who knew? Because only the church had the Bible and the intellectual. Zwingli realized in his own life That when he longed after the truth, all his reading and study in the interpretation of the church on the Bible did not satisfy this longing for the truth. It was not until 1516 that he took up the Bible itself and read that he found the truth he was longing for and it transformed him. And he believed if you give this book to the people 
and let them read the truth for themselves, it will transform the world. So he writes on the clarity and certainty of the word of God. He said, the word can be clear to the uneducated because God's spirit will make the word clear to his people, even without 17 years of education. Now this thinking in his mind explains why, I didn't mention this, but his 35th birthday when he began preaching for the very first time in Zurich, he did something that had not been commonly done for over a thousand years. The usual practice for a preacher was to get into the pulpit for the priest, to go into his church, and he had a lectionary that would tell him, this is the passage for today, and so teach about that, similar to many Catholic churches today. So there were certain passages that were read, but not the whole Bible. And what Zwingli did is he got into his pulpit and he began at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. And he explained the text and preached verse by verse. John Chrysostom, over a thousand years before, had done this. But other than him, this was not common practice. This was something new and strange. But Zwingli believed if you give the people the word of God as it is, without all these interpretive additions, just give it to them as it is and explain it, the original meaning, it will change the people. And so he had been doing that through Matthews and Acts, Timothy and on. Now, one of the teenagers actually who's sitting in his church once recounted that when he heard Zwingli preaching the Bible itself, he felt like he'd been grabbed by his hair and pulled into the heavenly places. So this is a great preacher preaching a great word. 1522, the Reformation is now taking the city by storm. Not the German Reformation, a Reformation of its own by God's Spirit. This leads, as it always does, to lots of opposition. Many people were speaking against Zwingli. But God turned the opposition for good because January 29, the next year, 1523, one of the most important events of the Swiss Reformation, the city basically realizes, hey, we can't waver between these two opinions anymore. A large part of the population of Zurich is being carried away by the preaching of Zwingli who advocates the Bible alone. But there's also a large part, or at least a part, that's still faithful to the Roman Catholic Church. These two don't go together. So the city itself realizes we need to decide which way we're going to go. You know, this is the Elijah on Mount Carmel showdown with the prophets of Baal. Which way are we going? This way or that way? And so January the 29th, 1523, the first Zurich debate. But it wasn't really much of a debate. Zwingli showed up to defend the Reformation said, anyone who is against me, speaking against me, and there are many, come and let's debate it. Let's decide this question. He shows up with three large books, the Greek New Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, and the Latin Vulgate translation of both. He's got long passages memorized, and he's able to quote them at will. He knows his scripture. Nobody's quite willing to stand up on the other side of the debate. And so by noon that day, the city council had already decided. And they gave a law. This is almost unbelievable. They gave a law that every preacher in the city was no longer allowed to just go and preach the humanists or preach the scholastic theologians of the church, the interpretations. Don't just go in and do that through the lectionary. Everyone in the city who preaches has to preach the word of God. <laughs> I say, I'm, I'm in favor of that law. Anyways, <laughs> maybe that's too far. But that's past. There's another debate. A little later in the year, they come to the same conclusion. 1523, Zurich is now no, no longer a Roman Catholic city. Zurich is a Protestant city. With that came a lot of changes. And this is where you see some of the differences between the Lutheran Reformation in Germany and what was happening in Switzerland. Swingley believed that he knew of Luther. They had written and read each other's works. Zwingli believed that Luther was not going quite far enough. 
especially when it came to matters of week-by-week worship. For example, Luther still held to a view of the Eucharist that was somewhat close to transubstantiation, that the real physical body of Jesus was there in communion. He changed it, but he still held to something similar. Zwingli said, no, in communion, we're just, we're remembering. Just as too limiting of a term. We're remembering what Christ has done. It's the memorial view. He also believed Luther didn't go far enough because Luther was okay with the trappings in the churches. For example, the images, the relics, priestly robes, all these things that really were traditions of the church. Luther said, well, if it doesn't compromise the gospel or justification by faith, leave it. It's not a big deal. Zwingli said, it is a big deal. Luther's view was what we today call the normative view of worship. That is, if the Bible doesn't clearly say you can't do this in church, then you can do it. But Zwingli's view is what we call the regulative principle, which is, if the Bible doesn't clearly tell you do this in church, then we don't do it. That leads to two different variations of a Reformation. Lutheranism, even today, is more okay with the artistic side, the images, and so forth. But the, the reform side of things coming out of Zwingli, not so much. What this meant that in the city, they began going into churches and removing images, removing relics, removing altars, no more priestly robes or vestments. These things have to go. They distract from the word of God. They are traditions that are against God's word. In fact, Zwingli actually went further than we were. You know, where do we fall in regulative normative here? Mm, It's a spectrum. It's a spectrum. We shouldn't introduce weird things that aren't in the Bible in the church. Okay, but there are some things like we have instruments. That's not in the New Testament. Zwingli, in fact, said that's not in the New Testament, so that's not in the churches. He himself was maybe the best musician of the reformers, knew several instruments, but he refused to have musical instruments in the church services because he said, I don't see that in the New Testament. Now, even if he went further than we go, you can appreciate his thinking because what's happening is he says, I'm coming out of this background where the church has invented all these traditions and imposed them on the people. Now I find in the word of God, where are those traditions? And so he says, it's time to clean house. Get rid of all the additions. Let's worship in spirit and truth according to the word of God. So there are changes in Zurich. Monasteries, nunneries begin closing just like they do in Germany. Because Zwingli says, where in the Bible is there a forced vow of celibacy to fill some role? It's not in the Bible. In fact, Zwingli as a priest was not allowed to marry, but he did. Secretly, actually, in 1522 to Anna Reinhardt, he didn't tell anybody. And for two years, he was, she was his secret wife. I'm not sure how she felt about that. But as things were changing and the city was moving and was now re- becoming reformed in 1524, conveniently she was pregnant now, so it couldn't be a secret long. Now he comes forward and publicly declares, you know, we're married. Things are changing. Zwingli also begins something that will be important for the rest of Christendom, and I shouldn't say Christendom in this context, Christianity. He begins what's called the prophecy. He realizes, this is great, let's change these external things, get rid of the images, but that's not the most important thing. He says, the most important thing is that people know the word of God, and that's going to happen in a largely illiterate society through the preacher's. So he begins a training school for the preachers. It's called the prophecy. Maybe a bit of a misuse of that term perhaps, but it's called the prophecy. And he says they're studying in the tongues because Greek and Latin. So that's not the way the Bible uses that. But anyways, it's called the prophecy. And every morning in his church in the great minster, there would be large groups of people gather, especially the preachers. And they would come and there would be a person who would explain a passage of the Old Testament according to the Hebrew. And then someone else would give some interpretation of it. And then someone else would preach about it. 
This was done in multiple languages and the purpose was so people, especially the preachers, know the word of God. The New Testament was covered in another church in the afternoon. Now what's interesting, if you see the parallel movement of Swiss Reformation and German Reformation, at this point in the German Reformation, Luther had taken his stand, gone to the Diet of Worms, gone into hiding so he doesn't get killed. The Reformation's moving forward in Wittenberg. And what happens next? Some of his colleagues get radicalized. In other words, like Karlstadt, they believe you're not going, you've gone far, but you're not going far enough. And they go way far. That happens in the German Reformation. Same thing happens with some differences in the Swiss Reformation at this point. Right as the Reformation's gaining traction, gaining speed, there are people in the city of Zurich who say, Zwingli, you're not going far enough. You think Luther hasn't gone far enough? You're not. For example, why are we still practicing the Roman Catholic Church's tradition of baptizing babies? That's not in the Bible. Zwingli agreed. That's not actually in the Bible. And at first Zwingli wavered on this, thought, why are we doing that? That's not in the Bible. We're removing everything else that's not in the Bible. But some of this comes from the fact that Zwingli was a Swiss of Swiss and some from just the time in which he lived. Although Zwingli couldn't find it in the Bible, especially not at first. Later he found reasons to have it in the Bible. But at first, where is it? He eventually came to the point where he said, you know, I just cannot imagine a world, a city, in which the population has a large number who have not been baptized into the church and therefore are not officially members of the church. You can't have a city that has citizens that are not also church members. In the medieval world, that was unthinkable because that separated the church out from the state in a way that they could not conceive of. That's how it is today. We recognize now that's right to do that separation. Zwingli could not. How, he thinks, can you control the people if they're not all at least in name Christians? And how are you going to make them all at least in name Christians unless you baptize them against their will when they're babies and they're Christians? So sadly, Zwingli turned against this group of people, the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists we'll speak more of later when we consider another reformer, Menno Simons. But here I'll just say the Anabaptists went against Zurich, the authorities, and after warnings, baptized each other as adults. Another baptism, Anabaptist. And they were driven out of the city by Zwingli and by the, by the city council for what they did. At least one of them, several of them eventually drowned. They were, in their view, tearing up the fabric of society. Sad, they were, that was wrong, that was wrong. Now we come to the final season of Zwingli's life. As with Luther and Melanchthon, we love the 1520s. These are great years. And when you get to 1530, just close the book and walk away. Because after 1530, things go bad. I don't know why. It's true with Luther's truth, Melanchthon, is true here with Zwingli as well. Now, the issue with Luther, you remember, after the 1530s, is he was too stubborn, especially when he was wrong. The issue with Melanchthon is that he was not stubborn enough, so he wavers. The issue with Zwingli is his view of politics. Really, for Zwingli, it's how does the political world, the city, interact with the church, the religious world. Now, all the magisterial, the main reformers we think of, like Luther and so forth, believe that the government should encourage, promote, protect, especially believers as they follow conscience. They should protect reformers in the Reformation. But the other reformers were not willing to say that the government should take up the sword and enforce the Reformation. Zwingli was willing to say that. Unfortunately, it showed itself after 1530. Now, Switzerland was made up of several cantons. Just think of states, basically. 
But not quite, because they weren't as united as the United States of America. They were more loosely connected. They were somewhat independent from each other, but whatever any of them did affected the others, these cantons. Zurich was the main city of one of these cantons, so whatever it did affected the others. Now, the problem was that the Reformation happening in Zurich led that canton to become Protestant. But it also influenced what was happening in other cantons. So eventually several other of the 13 cantons also became Protestant. But not all of them. There were several that remained Roman Catholic. And because they were all loosely affiliated, that led to problems. Zwingli's hope as he sees this developing in the late 1520s is to form alliances with the Protestants, take up the sword, defend ourselves, defend our cause, and as we'll see, even advance it. Zwingli had actually hoped that he would be able to unite with Luther and the German Reformation. Here's two Reformations happening at the same time, both opposed by the world. Let's join together politically, and we'll have the German princes and the Protestant cantons and the military might together to stand against the Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. In 1529, famously at Marburg, Zwingli and Luther met. They had come together, the Swiss and Luther, the Lutherans, the Germans, had come together to see if they could come to a theological agreement so that they could be united. They agreed on 13 out of 14 points of theology. But it was on the 14th point that they did not agree. This was the Eucharist. Luther still believed there was some real physical presence of Jesus there. It had to be because, as he famously said during this Marburg colloquy as they're meeting, he's written on the table in chalk or something, Hoc est corpus meum. This is my body. And Luther says, that's the final word. Jesus' physical body has to be there. And, you know, Zwingli, I think, he didn't do this, but he could have said, do this in remembrance of me. Because memorial view. That was a misunderstanding of this is my body. But Luther could not come to agreement. So they left divided. Well, things are moving toward war in Switzerland, the end of the 20s. Because you have these Catholic and Protestant cantons. June the 8th, 1529, shortly before this time, a Zurich preacher had gone out into a Catholic canton and had been killed for preaching the Reformation. So June the 8th, 1529 begins what we call the First Capel War. It wasn't much of a war. It lasted less than a month. Basically, the Protestants came out against the Catholics. The Protestants had way huger numbers. And the Swiss, who were so accustomed to being mercenaries for everybody else, just couldn't find it in them to fight other Swiss. So they say, let's just come to a peace agreement. Protestants are in the stronger position, so they get to decide some of the terms. And they basically say, okay, there's peace, but you have to do this, this, and this, which will promote the Reformation spreading. That only lasts for two years because from Zwingli's perspective, the Catholic cantons did not keep their word, did not honor the peace treaty they had signed. So in 1531, the Second Capel War begins. This really was a war in the sense there was at least one battle. That happened October 11th, 1531. What had happened was that Zurich, under the guidance of Zwingli and others in the council, had imposed a food blockade on the Catholic cantons. The Catholic cantons were the inner cantons, so if you tried to block them from the outside, they couldn't get food. Main, this wasn't, they weren't starving, but they didn't have salt, okay? You don't have salt, things don't taste good. So they're upset about that, so the Catholic cantons come, and they're outside of Zurich ready to fight with a large force. The Protestants are squabbling among themselves. What should we do? So they're not ready. Zurich is the only one ready for war, and they're hardly ready. They go out to meet the Catholics, but they have a small force compared to a much larger force. The battle lasts about one hour. 500 Zurichers die. Included among the 500 is Ulrich Zwingli. 
he had gone out with, to be a chaplain, but almost undoubtedly had a sword in his hand. And he lived by the sword, and he died by the sword. After this, back in Zurich, with the leader dead, his successor, Heinrich Bullinger, was appointed to take his place. Bullinger will be there in Zurich for 40 years, continuing the Reformation, doing some very important things, important reform in his own right. But this was the end of Zwingli and his influence, or his uh, work, 1531. Ulrich Zwingli is not as well known today as others, Luther, Calvin. Probably some of that is because he died on the battlefield, not something we want to imitate. Maybe another part is he was a believer. His teaching on justification by faith was not nearly as clear as, say, Luther's. He was more focused on Christ alone, Scripture alone, which implied faith alone, but he didn't teach it as clearly. So maybe for these reasons, he's less well-known. But one thing is really certain. Ulrich Zwingli was the instrument that God used to bring about the greatest reformation Switzerland had ever known, which would reverberate out even to this very day. It was this man who could not satisfy his thirst for the truth anywhere in the established church of the time, who was willing eventually, though fearful, he was willing eventually to venture out for the sake of God's word. And when that word had set him free, he desired to set it free among the people, and that's exactly what he did. His Swiss people whom he loved had long been the mercenaries of the world, but Zwingli took a different path. And so we remember him, even to this day, by the title that he deserved, God's Mercenary. I want to take a, just a few minutes, if you have any questions, to address those. Yeah, Rick. So the question is, was John Calvin influenced by Zwingli, especially since he's in Geneva, which is Swiss? Uh, the answer is... Yes, in a secondary way. I don't know that Zwingli ever met Calvin, but Heinrich Bullinger, who succeeds Zwingli, he actually has a large influence on Calvin. In fact, he and Calvin meet together, what's called the Consensus Tigurinus, and it's, this is many years after Zwingli's died. They meet together and come to common ground on the Eucharist, because that was the issue again with Calvin and the Swiss. And so they come together. So in fact, if you're thinking um, of what capital R Reformed tradition church today, it comes really from the Swiss Reformation, Zwingli, and John Calvin. Those are the two main figures. And they, they came together in a way that Luther and Lutheranism didn't. That's why Lutheranism is a separate thing. Yeah, Marilyn. Did Zwingli have as much opposition from the Pope as Oh, so the question is, did Zwingli have as much opposition from the Pope as Luther did. The answer is no, and there were several reasons. Uh, perhaps reason number one, the Pope, especially early on, needed to stay on Zwingli's good side, really Switzerland's good side, because that's where he's getting his soldiers from. The Pope didn't really want to get his hands in there and mix things up and get people upset, because he needed soldiers. And especially early on, Zwingli was saying, like, hey, you can have soldiers, you're the only one who should. Later, as developments move on, the Pope wasn't nearly as involved, but it's also maybe partly, so that's one thing. Uh, another thing is, Zwingli's only there for 10 years, then he dies. So there wasn't really time for other things to develop. The third thing is, Switzerland's independent from the Holy Roman Empire. That's really important. That's why you don't, you know, with Luther in Germany, it's like warfare, the Pope and uh, the Emperor, all this is happening. The reason that doesn't really happen in Switzerland is because Switzerland's independent. It's not part of the Holy Roman Empire. So if it does crazy things, the emperor doesn't feel as much like, oh, I have to take care of this. It's not part of my empire. And so they kind of deal with it in-house. I think that's probably why the Pope wasn't as involved either. That makes sense. So he was not quite as a hindrance. He was not as much as a hindrance. Absolutely. Yep. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, so the question is, 
of the reformers, do any of them talk about God's sovereignty as opposed to human will and so forth, especially because it seems like he takes things into his own hands there at the end. It's interesting you say that. You know, I always have to decide what I'm going to cut out of these lessons, which is unfortunate. And the number one biggest thing that I, couldn't, I did not include for sake of time was his view of sovereignty. Because actually, he, was, he had what we'd consider the strictest view of God's sovereignty of all the reformers. Maybe a little too much of a strict view of God's sovereignty, influenced a bit by his humanist learning. He was almost a fatalist. I don't know if we can go that far. But he just really believed in God's sovereignty. That was one of the most important aspects of his ministry. Even when he went to Marburg to meet with Luther, try to fix things, he came there before Luther arrived and he preached a sermon. It's a very famous sermon of his that is on God's providence, sovereignty. Basically, he agreed with Luther because Luther was fighting the humanists, fought Erasmus, said you have too high a view of man's nature and so forth. And he argued against that free will, semi-Pelagian free will. Zwingli said, I agree with that, but that's about all I agree with. And he had all these other, so it's kind of an alternative view. But so why that didn't stop him from taking the reins? I think he just had a view of the political realm that was wrong. And he just thought, this is how we do it. And this is right. I don't know where that came from. Good question. Last question if we have it or we'll be done here. All right, let me pray for us and we'll conclude. Lord, I thank you very much for allowing us the opportunity to, well, to think and to think about Zwingli, but really just to think through Zwingli to your word. What does your word say about life, about worship in the church, the normative and regulative, what should be included and not? What does your word tell us about your sovereignty? What does your word tell us about politics? What does your word tell us about eternal life, salvation through Christ alone? I pray that you would help us to hold fervently to these facts of scripture and never to waver. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.